Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Ned, Chuck, Emerson, and Olive from Pushing Daisies. And joining me for the discussion is returning Protagonist Podcast co-founder Todd Mack. Welcome back, Todd. I'm happy to be here to talk about this awesome show. Oh, I love this show so much. <laughs> um, we're going to be discussing the pilot episode, which is titled Pilet, P-I-E-L-E-T-T-E. <laughs> <laughs> delights me no end it was written by brian fuller and directed by barry sonnenfeld and originally aired on october 3rd 2007 it stars lee pace as ned the pie maker anna friel as charlotte chuck charles uh chi mcbride as emerson cod Kristen chenoweth as olive snook ellen green as vivian charles and Swoozy kurtz as lily charles what a name. jim dale Swoozy kurtz <laughs> yes <laughs> it sounds like one of the made-up characters for the show totally <laughs> <laughs> Like Lily Charles actually sounds more less made up than Swoozy Kurt. Totally, totally. And Jim Dale provides a narration uh, for the episodes. So Todd, a little while ago, I was recording a special episode with Brandon Uccio. And he said to me, Joe, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and you talk about Pushing Daisies a lot. And I just want to say, I do not talk about Pushing Daisies enough because this show is amazing. <laughs> this pilot is really good. This is so um, we did we did an episode on Paddington 2 uh, with Scott Carelli came on as a guest and I said Paddington 2 is a perfect perfect movie it doesn't mean it's the best movie ever made but it is perfect for what it's trying to do like there's nothing that should be changed about Paddington 2 (laughs) I feel that way (laughs) about the Pushing Daisies pilot this is perfect there's nothing that should be altered in any way (laughs) Uh, it's bold but but uh, (laughs) but not wrong (laughs) oh just just as soon as the visuals came up with that oversaturated yellow and then the jim dale voiceover like giving us whenever he marks the time Mm -hmm. i love jim dale telling us like how long something has been (laughs) it's just like oh why do i not have 100 episodes of this tv show to watch right really (laughs) uh so some trivia about pushing daisies well i guess first todd did you watch pushing daisies when it first aired Oh, no. I watched Pushing Daisies because you pushed. See how I did that? Pushing Daisies oh. on me. Oh, Todd, I, I liked that a lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it would have been when we were in college and you said, you have to watch this show. And then I watched it. I don't know if I've seen all of it. I mm-hmm. I don't know. I, you know, I, I remember thinking, oh, this is totally delightful. But. It's never, I've never, like, I haven't had the DVDs at home and it's not, it hasn't been streaming. It's not a good streaming home. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I just bought the first episode on Amazon Prime so I could watch it again and, and, and realize why have I not seen all of this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's so much to love uh, about Pushing Daisies. But before we get into all that, some trivia. So, Pushing Daisies had a nine episode first season. It was, uh, they had a 13 episode order, which is a standard for like a new show uh, getting that's called a half season uh, back in the day <laughs> would have been the 13 episode um, order. Uh, but then this was 2007 and the writer strike came. And so they were only able to produce nine episodes. Um, <clears throat> and I will just say there's not a great it, it doesn't feel so much like a season finale <laughs> like they weren't mm. wrapping something up and I, th- I think they tacked on kind of a cliffhanger to get you to come back for season two but ratings between the first and second season dropped a ton mm-hmm. which this is a weird period in television history both in terms of like the very early emergence of streaming competition is starting to happen but the writer's strike is also um really disruptive to so many shows like the Everything basically had a half season in 2007. Uh, and it really hurt Pushing Daisies, I think, being able to to build this audience that it was so kind of abrupt to just have nine episodes. Mm-hmm. And then the second season that gets ordered is only 13 episodes. So in total, there's only 22 episodes <laughs> that mm-hmm. exist of this. Um, and oh, I just wish there was more. Oh, it's so <laughs> good. Um, a, a huge part of what I love about this 
is the uh, like the visual aesthetic mm-hmm. that they create. And uh, production designer uh, Michael Wiley said that he wanted the series to feel like a storybook come to life and everything should look and feel like an illustration in a picture book. And that uh, is in terms of the color choices. So they use lots of reds and oranges and yellows, but almost no blue because um, they wanted it to feel very warm uh, and, and uh, like uh, kind of pushing forward, whereas blue is a cool color that recedes. Um, with that and also how like they frame the shots like so many shots mm-hmm. when you're going into a scene you could see this like being the page on a book yep <laughs> uh and and so i think uh michael wiley you nailed it if that was your goal yeah um to do this and cinematographer michael weaver said he wanted it to feel somewhere between amelier and a tim burton film and as soon as he said that i'm like yep <laughs> that is a pretty good description oh, totally I, I when i was watching this i thought this is a, a sibling of big fish mm-hmm. but it's it, so i mean this is something i want to talk to john i think th- this has that blend of um kind of whimsy and macabre that mm-hmm. uh tim burton does totally but tim burton leans more into the macabre and this leans more into the whimsy mm-hmm. right the balance is different yeah but see that's why i go with big fish and not some of us tim burton's other like, stuff. like corpse bride or uh or beetlejuice yeah this feels like big fish because big fish to me doesn't feel like a dark film it feels like a bright like a bright and happy you know and yes. whimsical film in the way that this does but i think big fish kind of stands out in the tim burton canon like if you yes. did like a color palette of all of his films big fish would be oh, like totally a it's a total beacon. outlier but 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 the exactly the reason why it fits better with this Mm-hmm. It's a better yeah, it's a better that. comp than than any of Tim Burton's other stuff. Adam's family. Yeah, right. totally. <laughs> and Amelie, it also totally fits with that as well. The, okay, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and pronou- uh, and uh, apologize to Kishta Christensen for how I pronounced Amelie and the word macabre, which I never know how to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, have you seen Amelie? I have, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's... Uh, it, it was it, in film school. I, oh, I yeah. so I've only seen it the once. <laughs> if you're in film school, then you saw Emily. Yeah, no, it's yeah. uh it feels like this also. That's a voiceover mm-hmm. narrator and um Yeah. Uh and, he nailed it. Okay. Michael Weaver got what he was looking for. <laughs> yeah, so so far everyone's like nailing what their goals are oh, yeah. for this. Um and in terms of the production design, one thing that I saw noted is that they very deliberately used lots of circles and uh, in background shapes and also like framing devices. Like as you're entering a scene, you're often passing through a circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted lots of round spaces and very few sharp edges happening visually mm-hmm. uh, in it. And it um, that's something. Um, oh, is it? It's big fish. I, OK, this is why. I use Big Fish as an example of this because uh, in Big Fish, you have the son's point of view and his worldview and then the dad's storytelling mm-hmm, worldview. Mm-hmm. And I show in my classes uh, when I talk about visual aesthetics, sometimes I will show a scene of the son's apartment, which is n- like hundreds of right angles in the background. Uh-huh. Uh, everything is straight lines and hard edges uh, <laughs> and, and, and right angle quarters. And then I show them uh, the dad's space and it is all soft curves That's awesome. everywhere. And, and it's reds and yellows. Like, and the sun's is black and white. Uh-huh. Uh, his space is black and white, hard edges. Uh, and the dad's world is all just lush colors. Uh, and Big Fish is a really good comp for this. Thank you, Todd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for, for bringing that up. <laughs> uh, and, and the way that they talked about their, like, even just the feel of the shapes they wanted in the spaces, that is the father's point of view in Big Fish. Uh, it, also kinda, it also kind of feels like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Is that Tim Burton mm-hmm. also? Uh, yeah, the the Charlie, not the the Willy Wonka is the the older one. That's right, not that's the old one, the newer one. Yeah. That one is Tim Burton. Yes. It feels a little bit like that also visually, but more like Big Fish. Mm-hmm. Um and we've talked about how so many of the creators are like nailing exactly what they want. Oh, poor Brian Fuller. He has tried to wrap up the series so many times. <sighs> <laughs> so it got canceled from him in season two. He announced season a season three comic book and i remember this being announced like oh i could like visually and aesthetically i could see this world being a comic book uh-huh. and that's just fine and it was announced as like a 12 issue uh mini series um and then <laughs> the comic book publisher he had signed with folded before it could be published oh but like gosh. some art had been produced for this uh, like he just wanted to wrap up the storylines and put the characters where he wanted them at the end uh so that got canceled and then it was announced like well, maybe he's gonna be able to transform this into a graphic novel but then it never ended it getting published then the veronica mars crowdfunded movie happened mm-hmm. um with um is is morris the name of the creator of veronica mars i, I can't remember Rob morris. 
Um, I think this is Rob Brian Morris. Fuller, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Reached out to Rob Morris and like they talked about how they could do that for Pushing Daisies to try and do something to wrap up Pushing Daisies. But they decided like the budget between Veronica Mars versus Pushing Daisies. We're talking about different levels. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, ah, we can't crowdfund this. Uh, but then um, I think it was Stars like took the Doctor Who spinoff into Torchwood and like was trying to do like a space adventure on a smaller budget. He's like, oh. I could do something with stars. And like, it was in the press that he was talking to stars to try and get a mini series to, to wrap things up. Didn't happen. Then if you remember like four or five years ago, lots of networks were doing revivals of older shows. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, again, he was in the news, like talking about like, I, I could ABC, we could, we could do it. <laughs> we, we could wrap up. Pushing ridiculous. <laughs> and nothing happened. And then also there have been rumors for years of a Broadway musical of pushing daisies, which would be um, awesome with Kristen Chenoweth. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and still, nothing has happened. I just, I hope Ryan Fuller is able at some point to get the characters where he wanted them to be. It's like Lost in La Mancha. This is unbelievable. Um, and talking about this, this um, series, we, we mentioned like it only lasted two seasons, but in those two seasons, there's 22 episodes. It was nominated for 18 Emmy Awards and won seven. Gosh. Uh, and the winners include Barry Sonnenfeld for directing, Kristen Chenoweth for Outstanding Supporting Actress, James Dooley for the music, and they also had wins for editing, art direction, costuming, and makeup. Wow. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, this was like a critically acclaimed film somehow just with the mess of scheduling. And I'm sure it's not just like only nine episodes and then oh, are we, I'm sure it was getting moved around the schedule with ABC, with the writer's strike. Everything uh-huh. was just kind of up in the air. It just never found its audience at the time. Um it is not uh, right now. It's on HBO Max um, for for streaming. If you are signed up to HBO Max, or you you can um, like you did, you know, buy the seasons or or individual episodes on some other streaming services. If you've never watched it, please go watch it. It is so <laughs> so good. <laughs> um. All right. Before we move on to the summary of the pilot episode, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening. We especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. On to the summary of pilot. You know um, what? I did not even realize that 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 was the title of the pilot. Like I had seen it, but I hadn't said it out loud. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty great. <laughs> pilot. Oh, it is so great. All right. Imagine a very stylized world where colors are oversaturated. There's a voiceover narration by Jim Dale. All the sets and costumes are stylized. People speak with the patter of a 1940s screwball comedy. And our main character, Ned, has magical powers, but he doesn't know it yet. As a child, he learns about his gift when his dog is hit by a truck. He can bring dead things back to life with a touch. After touching his dog in the road, the dog springs to life and runs off through the field again. It's important that he never pets this dog again. <laughs> we'll yeah, find right. out why. <laughs> It's really, really fortuitous that the dog didn't come in for another little ride. Um, Ned does not see that another animal dies to pay the price for his dog's new life. Later that day, after playing with his best friend, a girl named Charlotte, Charles, whom he calls Chuck, uh, Ned's mother dies from an aneurysm. Uh, And Ned goes over and he touches her to bring her back to life. Due to the price that Ned does not yet understand, another person in close vicinity dies. In this case, it is friend Chuck's father. That night, when his mother kisses him goodnight, his mom dies permanently too. Uh, this is another part of his powers that he has to learn. First touch brings life. Second du- touch brings death permanently. Um, and he's going to learn that there's a one minute time limit. Like he can touch something. And if he touches it again, that second time within a minute, <clears throat> nothing else dies to pay the price. Uh, after her father's funeral, Chuck moves away to live with her aunts, a pair of sisters who have made a career out of synchronized swimming in mermaid costumes. <laughs> As an adult, Ned runs a restaurant called The Pie Hole. He uses his magical powers to bring rotten fruit back to its best self and bakes the best fruit pies in town. His only employee, Olive, is madly in love with him, but Ned is pleasant uh, uh, but emotionally distant. <laughs> like There's no connection there for Ned to Olive. A private investigator named Emerson Codd once saw Ned's power in action when he was chasing a suspect who fell to his death near Ned, but bumped into Ned after he, uh, the body bumps into Ned. Uh, so now the victim jumps up 
uh, back to life and starts running and Ned runs after him and taps him and the man dies. Uh, so Emerson, having seen this, fully accepts it. That's one thing I love is like there's this uh-huh. these wild leaps of logic and it, it's not magical realism because everything's so heightened, but it's there's magic happening. And as soon as people like see it, they're like, OK, <laughs> yep. there, this, this is magic and we're, we're moving on. We're not going to deal with it uh, like, like all the doubt and everything. So now Emerson has an arrangement with Ned. Emerson will take Ned to the morgue where Ned taps a murder victim. The victim pops up alive. Ned and Emerson ask who killed them. Then Ned taps them again. And Emerson goes and solves the crime and kills collects the the reward that he splits with ned (laughs) ned has learned that he has one minute to touch the person a second time or somebody in the vicinity will die ned's childhood friend chuck is murdered on a cruise ship and becomes known as the lonely tourist ned and emerson go back to his hometown of cor de cor to to investigate (laughs) after after touching her corpse ned and chuck immediately reconnect and he cannot bring himself to touch her again the funeral director who the audience knows is a gray robbing thief and a horrible person dies Uh, Ned sneaks uh, Chuck back to his apartment and he explains to her that they they can never touch again and she can never go out again. (laughs) Uh, Chuck wants to see her aunts again uh, because uh, in their lives they've turned into agoraphobic recluses. Uh, This is before their niece died. Um, But the aunts know that Chuck has died and Ned doesn't want his powers discovered. He doesn't want to deal with all that. So he says, you can't go see your aunts. Though Ned tries to keep Chuck secret, um, Chuck doesn't want to be kept secret. <laughs> she just walks out. <laughs> I love the scene where uh, so Olive is like lives next door to uh, Ned and is desperately in love with him, uh, but he gives her no emotional feedback and won't even touch her. And then Olive sees Chuck leaving Ned's apartment, and he sh- they just pause and stare at each other. And then Olive says, "Does he touch you?" <laughs> Oh, so, the line deliveries in this are amazing. It's throughout. The whole script, all of the dialogue in this is, it's like you said, like you wouldn't want to take a word away. Um, so Chuck has left Ned's apartment and Emerson sees her and immediately knows <laughs> what Chuck has, has done. And so, but Emerson just, other than being upset that he might've been the person to die because he was in the vicinity. <laughs> Uh, they just move on and they start grilling Chuck about how uh, she died. And um, she says that she won the cruise that she died on from the boutique, boutique travel boutique. Uh, but as part of this, she was asked by uh, to transport some plaster monkeys as part of this trip that she had won. Uh, so they think she might have been a drug mule. Uh, they go to the boutique travel boutique where they find the travel agent dead. Ned taps her arm and they learn from the agent that Chuck was smuggling the monkeys. But before they can get any more information, the travel agent reaches out and pinches Ned's cheek. And <laughs> she's now permanently dead before they find out who killed her. Um, Chuck realizes uh, that her personal effects from the cruise ship, including the monkeys, would have been sent to her aunts. So they that must be where the killer is going now. Ned and Emerson go to visit Lily and Vivian. Lily has an eye patch. Uh, I love I love these women so much. They are just fantastic creations. Uh, when Ned and Emerson ask about the monkeys, Lily goes upstairs to get them from Chuck's room. The murderer attacks and puts a plastic bag over Lily's head uh, to suffocate her. When Lily doesn't return, Ned goes upstairs and he is also attacked by the murderer. Chuck has entered the house by climbing through a window and she helps Ned. Suddenly, as they are fighting, a shot rings out. The murderer is killed. Lily is holding a shotgun and announces that she can hold her breath for a very long time. (laughs) Because she was one of the darling mermaid, darling, darling mermaid darlings. Yes. Uh, And it seems like she must be staring at Ned and Chuck, who are staring back mouths agape but then the camera pans to reveal that from her point of view because of her missing eye chuck is blocked by the door jam and <laughs> lily only sees ned fighting <laughs> this is my favorite camera pan joke in history it is so well done oh, yeah. the camera pan is part of the storytelling and it's a joke that makes you like gasp but is also narratively relevant oh yeah so it's good. great chuck slips out emerson ned the aunts of chuck split the reward money for catching the murderer ned and chuck discover the monkey statues were actually made of go- gold and now ned chuck and emerson will work together to solve crimes as a trio ned and chuck are madly in love but can never touch the end mm. it's good it's really really good um i remember hearing about this before the first episode you know aired like just like a reviewer giving a positive review and just the concept of the crime of the week murder show with someone who can bring the victim back to life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that tickled me. But then watching the pilot 
it was so much more than like like there's so much high concept in this oh, yeah. that you have to explain like the rules of the magic and you you really do need like Jim Dale's narration to like walk you through mm-hmm. things but he's walking you through things but his narration isn't just walking you through things like it is adding so much to the feel of the show uh to to have Jim Dale do, uh giving you all that information but there's so much information to go to 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 give you and i i was looking at it's like six it's a 6 minute childhood flashback mm-hmm. that explains all of what his powers are and um and again like there's every choice is so deliberate where like when his mom dies she was making a strawberry pie mm-hmm. um you know like, like there's so much where it's like okay we're, we're doing all this work to like just explain the world but every choice is also adding to the world yeah you know and then he's going to become the pie maker uh and uh and then i think it's like by I want to say it was 11 minutes uh, is when like you now have like the modern setup of Emerson and him and his, his arrangement and like, okay, we've done all the world building in 11 minutes for yeah. a pretty complex world. Yeah. <laughs> they had to build. No, it's um, it's, it's really good. One of the things that stood out to me in um, is, okay. So we talked about the, there's this visual aesthetic, with all these super warm, saturated colors. Um, and then there's the, this 1940s uh, dialogue, and then I was I, I I was noticing there's like this um, like a chiasm that's set up often. So you have the travel the boutique travel travel boutique, and you have the darling mermaid darlings and core to core I'm like, what is that? And then I was thinking, oh, of course, hello. Like they're dead, then they're alive, then they're dead, or they're alive, then they're dead, then they're alive, and mm-hmm. so it's it's like all the way down <laughs> like every 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 decision is it adds to the 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 whole thing right yeah just awesome oh that's a oh, now i'm gonna be i'm thinking about that pattern that you just identified the chiasmus oh i love this show so much yeah i feel like i need to watch it again and think about it more yeah totally <laughs> um it, and it just it, 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 one thing that fascinates me is it is a murder of the week show on the one hand, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> like we're dealing with death. It is so prominent in what this is, but it also just feels so warm and cozy, right? It, it, it's um, the cozy murder. And it's <laughs> a little know, bit, uh, it's a little, you know, the guy with the, the, the dog, there's a, there's a, there's a guy that hit, the dog has eaten mm-hmm. part of his face. Part of his face. <laughs> like the murder victims sometimes look grotesque. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, just mentioning the word grotesque, like the, the aunts, like there's something grotesque about their home, their, their house, like a little gothic, right? <laughs> well, yeah, but that's, you know, that's where you go back to Big Fish. Even like the the lady with the eye patch, mm-hmm. that's got to be homage to Big Fish, you think? Uh, it was Big Fish before this? It must have been, yeah. Big it Fish has to been. have been before this. Big Fish would have been. And I know Barry Sonnenfeld has said he 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 always gets compared to Tim Burton. And he's like, I'm trying to do my own thing. But there is so much overlap between like the pilot of this and Barry Sonnenfeld's visual style mm-hmm. that he gives and Tim Burton that I'm sorry, Barry Sonnenfeld, the <laughs> it's inevitable. Yeah. Big fish was uh, three or four years before this. Yeah. And the, and, and so I, th- I think again, like the lady with the eye patch and in big fish, you have the, the witch with the eye patch and you lift up the mm-hmm. patch and you see how you're going to die again. It's all, it's all tied together. Oh, big fish is another thing we need to talk about. <laughs> on this podcast. Totally beyond to talk with about big fish. <laughs> All right, it, it'll happen. <laughs> We're definitely going to do okay. that. Um, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I, I was just saying, like, there's a very warm, cozy feel, and the, that's I think comes to the musical score, the Jim Dale narration, the the visual aesthetic. Uh, but in general, do you think there's something about the spectrum of whimsical and the macabre where they do meet? <laughs> right <laughs> like this this is really doing it but i think like we're we're talking about a lot of like tim burton uh there's the gothic but also a whimsicalness that's present in in tim burton is that something that we look for in our storytelling like that we kind of go go around the edge and we're back because it feels like those should be very opposite yeah right the grotesque gothic and the the bright whimsical or is that something that makes this special that this is managing to do it and still make it feel like a cohesive whole. Well, I don't think, I don't think it's unique. Like mm-hmm. pushing days is, is not the only thing that's ever brought those two things together. I don't think historically that it's always been the case that they're just a natural pair. It's mm-hmm. like, um, 
well, I was watching a cooking show the other day. Maybe it was a, maybe it was Great British Baking Show, and Paul Hollywood was saying like, "Oh, bananas and basil, like what a great pair." And I'm like, <laughs> nobody ever, ever thought bananas and basil would be a great pair. <laughs> Until Paul Hollywood said it, and now there's probably a million people in their kitchens putting basil on their bananas and saying, "Oh, it's it's the way it always should have been." You know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about um, like the Gothic novel when it was invented it was not super like whimsical. Castle of Otranto and uh, your your Frankenstein, yeah, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Dracula. Yeah, like those are not those are not particularly whimsical. Um, I feel like the whimsy must have been brought in later. It's like a postmodern. Uh, yeah, it feels very we're postmodern. Do some genre blending. Yeah, but it works uh, well. Mm-hmm. Like they, the, they balance each other out. Um, and yeah, you know, I think Tim Burton probably has something to do with, with that, at least, you know, a certain, a, a certain way of, of, of combining the two things. Yeah. I mean, we do get that wave in the, is it like in the, in the sixties of, like comedy and well, I mean, you know, but like Adam's family monsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah. And, but even before then you get like Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. So like, I think we're starting to, to head in that direction, but that doesn't, it doesn't have the same kind of uh, like visual whimsy of this. Well, on, at least not uh, in the use of color. Certainly. I mean, well, all that stuff's in <laughs> black and white. Um, technology is a factor. Totally. <laughs> for that. But yeah. you know that's like the history of film, right? And technology plays such a a huge role in in the storytelling. Um, but you know, I can imagine a version, you know, in an alternate universe. Well, I mean, I don't know. Adam's family could have been done in color. Yeah, I mean the the Tim Burton film was done in color. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know that it does feel like in in this they really lean way more into the whimsy side of things it's so mm. bright yeah and, and and so so warm and there's such an emphasis on things like wordplay uh, mm-hmm. like like this is one of those shows where the words come so fast and are so clever i feel like i need to pause sometimes <laughs> wait like just yeah and process i mean you 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 mentioned the 1940 screwball but that's where this kind of thing comes from it could be his girl friday or Philadelphia story. Yeah. Or, or like, um, uh, the big sleep. Some of that. Oh, we did bringing up baby that. that. Yeah. Bringing up baby. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and so there's screwball comedies and then also noir that, uh, in, in often in noir, you get this kind of wordplay and then, and noir plays like well into this too, because it's dark and, and gritty. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering why it works so well. Cause it does feel so, <laughs> so different. Like, I mean, how many, uh, of our, our TV shows that are about like solving murders just end up feeling dark <laughs> and, and depressed. I mean, particularly the, our, our, our European imports. Oh, totally. Murder shows. Yeah. Uh, and this, I, I, and I'm saying that, but at the same time, I feel like there is like a whole literary subgenre of like coming out of Agatha Christie of like the cozy murder mysteries where it's not that where it's, it's a murder mystery, but it's not like making you feel despair for the human condition. Right. Uh, <laughs> right but you do feel a little bit of despair for, for Ned and Chuck in this. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it's like, yeah. it, it, it kind of comes, comes back full circle. Cause there is this kind of melancholy, even at the very end in that funny thing where he's holding his hand and she's holding her own hand at the end and it's like oh that's funny but it's also super sad yeah and and you you want this to be resolved that's why again like the people who love this really really love this and want resolution because they need it yeah and in terms of i mean we only watched the pilot uh but in terms of like brian fuller wanting to wrap stuff up um like there's mythology of like interpersonal relationships uh uh that start to like creep in of like uh why didn't we ever hear who chuck's mother was is going to become mm-hmm. <laughs> like a major a major thing and emerson's gonna uh you know have, have family things that are so it's when we talk about like the the mythology of the show there's like the magical mechanics uh-huh. uh you know of it that are, are part of the mythology but they start to build out like the kind of like character mythology that we talk about with sprawling narratives mm-hmm. um 
that that you got to start start tracking and it's unfortunate we don't get all of that paid off <laughs> in, yeah and what we have so far so at the end i, I, I just if, oh, yeah, sorry, like you can go ahead and i don't know i don't know if you even want to say this or not but is so the this ends after season two and there's like no resolution they're still just solving murders together and mm-hmm. Okay. It's not like yeah, you know, we're, we're we're heading into the. I mean, I've not watched that season finale. I, I think I've seen it twice, uh, okay. but it's been years since I watched watched it. But my memory is that um, they maybe like <sighs> filmed like something that makes it feel like okay, this could be the series finale, but they were really hoping for season three. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and probably expecting season three. So it's it's like um. I, I, we've all seen shows where it's like, okay, that was meant to be a season finale, not a series finale. That I think that's the general <laughs> feel that you, that you get. Yeah. Okay. And then there's shows where it's like, okay, they knew this was ending. And like, we, we're getting like seven episodes ramp up to, <laughs> to the big finale where uh-huh. everything is going to be, you know, everything's being put back in the box exactly where they want it. Okay. Okay. Do you want to talk about characters, individual characters? Yeah, let's, let's do that. Um, Ned is the pie maker. Um, and melancholy, I think is a really good word that you've already thrown out to help us get a handle on who Ned is as a character. Um, he is, uh, and when we get that origin story of him, uh, you know, his mom dying and then he gets sent off to a boarding school, you understand why he's emotionally distant, but then also <laughs> the fact that he must be carrying guilt for, mm-hmm. uh, unintentionally killing Chuck's dad unintentionally killing his mom again <laughs> right and so so right. he killed chuck's dad and then didn't, didn't even get the benefit that he thought he was you know when he when he, he brought his mom back to life um so there's a lot of trauma mm-hmm. that that's going to be defining uh him and it leads to lee pace being able to give i think a pretty subtle performance where so much of him feels drawn inward oh totally right? yeah like like the way he stands uh, the way he holds his head and he's constantly like looking down at himself, mm-hmm. like everything is retreating. And his uh, hands, he's always that. like sitting on his hands or he's got his hands behind his back or he's leaning away in kind of awkward ways. It kind of reminds me of, um, of uh, Sheldon in um, Big Bang Theory in the way mm-hmm. that he like he, it, physical contact almost makes him uh, like, yeah, it's like physically shudder. uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Like it makes him shudder. And it's not because he's going to kill everybody that he touches. It's just that he's so conscious of of where he is um, physically in space in relation to the people around him. And because he's had such traumatic experiences with touching people that if he's going to touch someone, it's going to be very intentional and he's very conscious about it. And in fact, he says when they're, when they're going to go, um, at the very end when they're going to they're going to touch a body and try to solve a murder and he says I feel uncomfortable with you watching me do this <laughs> um he's just so so self-conscious mm-hmm. and and you he says that he says it that one time but you see it throughout in in this like you said subtle performance um of Lee Pace he does a really good job with it one of the only other um like TV performances, I can remember where it's like once I start looking at like the physicality of how the actors holding themselves, like I can't unsee it, and it makes me more so impressed with their work. Is um, in Elementary. Um, oh, why am I blanking on the actors uh, who plays Sherlock Holmes in the in the CBS Elementary? Oh, I haven't Lee, seen him. Uh, is it Johnny Lee Miller? I think is his name. Let's see. Uh, it is. Yeah, Johnny Lee Miller. He plays Sherlock as like this coiled bundle of energy mm-hmm. and like everything looks tense around him. And when I see, like when I start looking at it, like he's always like his muscles are contracted. Mm-hmm. It feels like in Johnny Lee Miller's performance of Sherlock, which he did for like seven or eight years, mm-hmm. like that show went for a long time and he, he never lost that way. And I've seen him in other stuff and he just looks so much more relaxed mm-hmm. playing other characters. Uh, but that's how he was going to interpret Sherlock yeah. is, um, like this tightly coiled energy and with Lee Pace, it's not energy that you're reading off of him. It's this like inward moroseness, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this hesitancy and it is a stunning performance. I love Lee Pace in this. And he's one of those actors that I see him in other things that I almost forget. Like it, it it's always Lee Pace, but it's not. Yeah. Uh, we talked a little bit about this when we were doing uh newsies, so, like uh, Bill Pullman's always Bill Pullman. Uh, Lee Pace can disappear. <laughs> I think into, into so many roles. I don't even like, know I don't what else see... I've seen him in. Well, if you've seen Marvel films, he's Ronan the Accuser. 
Oh, he is? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and I saw some uh, some film that was a period piece where he was playing a, a pianist. Uh, and I just remember it was like, oh, that's the pie maker, but it's not the pie maker. Oh, he's in The Hobbit. <laughs> he's in The Hobbit movies. He's in, yeah, oh, he's, he's in Foundation. He's in so many things. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Have you seen, have you seen uh, the Foundation series on Apple TV? No, the one that's based on the uh, Asimov yeah, series. Yeah, yeah. He's no, in that. He's not. he's really good. Um. Yeah, I think he's he's an astounding actor. Like just the range that when I start mm-hmm. to like look at him and other things. Oh, okay, you're doing so much more than just being your cool self. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, other characters, uh, do you have a next favorite character after the pie maker? Oh man. Or is he your favorite? I guess maybe I shouldn't presume that he's your favorite. (laughs) (laughs) They're all so good. So Emerson is amazing. And she McBride, his line delivery is some of my favorite in the show. Oh yeah. I like, I love all the line delivery. These Mm -hmm. are all great, but something about his curtness and it, like the way his eyes are part of his line delivery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I just imagining it, I already see like his sigh and eye roll as he's saying words. He's so good. <laughs> yeah, and um, in future episodes we find out he's a he's a nervous knitter, and it is one of my favorite visuals. <laughs> is G McBride <laughs> has knit himself a holster for his handgun, <laughs> and it's like strapped to his suspenders. <laughs> I totally forgot about that. That's amazing. <laughs> Oh, such a great visual. Yeah. Uh, Emerson is great um, because he, this is a world that is simultaneously nonsense, but no nonsense. And uh-huh. he's, he's bringing the no nonsense um, to this. And he is going to be um, often like the call to action is G McBride come, you know, going to be coming in and saying, well, I've got a case. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, let's go collect the reward. Uh, so it's like, he has a, he has a narrative function to perform, uh, but the actor just imbues so much into mm-hmm. it. He's funny because he's so um, he's so opportunistic, and at the same time, he's he's just got this. You can tell he's got a really big heart. He's he's like mm-hmm. a big softy. Yeah, uh, and 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 it's that mix of um, disdain, but uh, like it feels like outward disdain, but you know inside, like he's kind of loving this. Oh yeah, <laughs> like Ned and Chuck getting together. <laughs> like he's like you're like he. On the outside, Chuck, you are a wrench in my perfect system that I right. had going where I could solve every crime. But I'm kind of happy that Ned's got someone. <laughs> yep. Uh, and and Chi McBride is able to play it. He's he's one of he's an actor that um He's also been in a bunch of stuff that I yeah, I wouldn't he, have thought of. He was in a short lived show like from Pushing Daisies, he went on to a human target mm-hmm. that I remember seeing some of. And I think the only, one of the only reasons I watched it, I mean, it, it was based on the kind of obscure DC comics property. So at the time there were like, everything wasn't based on comic mm-hmm. books. So it's kind of like, Oh, I'm interested in this because it's based on a comic book. Uh, but it was also like, I really liked Emerson. I want to see what that actor is doing next. Is <laughs> why I watched it. I think that one also only lasted like a season and a half. He was in the terminal and he's in iRobot. He was in Disney's he the kid. Oh, I forgot about the terminal. Yeah. Oh. He's been in a bunch of stuff. All right, uh, Anna Friel as Chuck. Oh my gosh, she's so good. The way she pops out of the coffin, which is not a normal sentence to introduce a character. <laughs> <laughs> but the way she pops out of the, 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 the coffin and just starts talking to uh, Ned without missing a beat mm-hmm. from their childhood friendship, you understand why he cannot possibly let her go back into the Oh room. yeah. It's, e- 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 there's no way. That he could touch her again. <laughs> and I, uh, I just love this as a world where again, like, like what you just said, they are so madly in love and they have such a deep connection that is not just lust, right? Mm-hmm. Like it is, these two are meant for each other, but they can't touch each other. <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, he, he can never touch her again. It's, it's such a wonderful storytelling device, like to add stakes and tension. And she's okay, uh, like, she's totally okay with it. I mean, mm-hmm. she's okay with, with, just being with him, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Their relationship is just awesome. It's like, so I can't hug you. Not even a hug. He's like, yeah, I don't want a hug. It's like, but I love hugs. And he's like, well, sorry. And she's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, it's something about how accepting she is of like her new status mm-hmm. as 
uh, I mean, don't they have a little conversation about like undead or like, right. what are we going to call this? <laughs> not a zombie. Not, is it him and her or is it him and I think, it, I think is, it's with uh, that G. It's G. Yeah. But before, before she comes back with Emerson. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause he says something about like, let's go make a zombie or something. He's like, I think that's disrespectful to call. Right. Them zombies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the, the dialogue in this is just amazing. Yeah. And, um, Anna Friel and, uh, Lee Pace. There's just great chemistry. Oh yeah. Um, and it's something that's able to translate so much in their eyes, like when they're looking at each other, mm-hmm. you know, because we're never going to see them kiss, right? It's just not going to happen in the premise of right. the show. So you can't be building that. So they have to be able to communicate it through the way they look at each other. Uh-huh. They, they do. Um, and you mentioned like at the end, there's the, you know, Jim Dale is like, uh, the, you know, they're looking at each other and he's like the pie maker, you know, held his own hand behind his back and he imagined he was holding hers and she did the same. And, you know, we get the shot behind them of them each like grasping each other's, well, their own hands, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> their own individual hands uh, behind their backs. It's just such a, a great core relationship to create for the show where there's so much that can't happen. And mm-hmm. yet, you know, the, uh, the obstacle literally can't be overcome <laughs> for this. Yeah. The other thing that I love about her is how she, she, I mean, her, her circumstances are very interesting, right? She, mm-hmm. uh, everybody thinks she's dead and she kind of needs for it to stay that way because she doesn't want to give away Ned's secret. Right. And so, so she's accepting the fact that she's going to have to live in anonymity but at the same time, she's not about to just stay in the house all day long. And so, you know, she puts on the the headscarf and the sunglasses and she's like, and the, trench coat. The, trench, <laughs> the trench coat, and she's like, yeah, let's go. You know, I'm going to go. I want to go see my aunts. I want to I want to go help you solve murders. And um, and just her like, yeah, let's let's do it. Let's just we'll make it work. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's uh, there's no bemoaning, um, you know, my fate that, you know, I was killed on a cruise ship. Yeah, <laughs> because I was carrying golden monkeys. Um, <laughs> this show is so bizarre. It is so absurd. It really uh, is. And it's just the right delightful absurdity yep. uh, for me, at least. I, I This may not be for everyone. It should be. It really should be for everyone. <laughs> uh, but I understand, like, it is so bizarre what they do that it could be a turnoff. Uh, I'm just remembering the visual of, like, a future episode where there's a... Uh, like a an environmentally friendly car that uses girls dressed like dandelions to, to promote it. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and there's a girl dressed like with dandelion p- puff hair all around her. But one of the plot points is that um, she's been trying to stay super skinny so she can stay in her dandelion uh, stock outfit. But then she's shoveling cake into her mouth as soon as she's like ducking behind a car. Oh my gosh! <laughs> that, that she's trying to sell at the same time it's on a spinning uh, table. This car and she's ducking behind it and walking so that no one can see her as she's eating cake. Oh my gosh! So much bizarreness in this show. It is um, very strange. Kristen Jenoweth, always a delight. Can I say she one more thing bring- about, about oh. Chuck? Yeah. I love when they go to do the last thing and and he touches the dead body. And then they're about to ask this guy how he was killed. And she says, is there anything that you'd like to say or any, you know, is there anything we could do for you kind of? Any final wishes. Any final wishes. And Chuck looks at her and he's, what does he say? It's like, I never, th- I never thought, to I never thought to ask that one, but I'm so glad that you did or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it says a lot about her as a person. Yeah. And she just gives a little smile when mm-hmm. he says that to her. And he's like looking in awe at her for like how human she yeah. is. <laughs> and she just gives a little smile. And then G McBride's in the background just rolling his eyes. Like, ask <laughs> so who killed good. him. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So good. Okay. Kristen Chenoweth. Uh, she's always like we talked about Lee Pace kind of can be a chameleon and just disappear into other mm-hmm. roles. Kristen Chenoweth is always Kristen Chenoweth. Totally. But there's no one that should be playing Olive Snook other than Kristen Chenoweth. Does Kristen Chenoweth ever star in anything? Or is she, it seems like she's, I mean, she was, uh, she was on Broadway. She was in uh wicked, uh, you know, right. so okay, I think okay, on Broadway, okay. she's like the protagonist very often. Okay. Um, but it, in television, it feels like she's always a side character. And I think some of it is like, she is so distinctly her. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen, you the, want that. Have you seen the movie? You want that as the have you seen the movie you again? No, I've not. Okay. <laughs> Go with your kids and, and it's on uh, Disney and watch the movie you again. And Krista Chenoweth plays a wedding coordinator and it's just, she's amazing. <laughs> when have we talked about, Oh, she was in uh descendants. We talked she's about in descendants. descendants. Yeah. Yeah. 
She's the the Maleficent, right? Yes, Maleficent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean she <laughs> she's just she shows up on screen and you're like, "Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here." She's in one episode of a later season run of Frasier mm-hmm. um, as uh, like a junior agent and Frasier wants the main agent. <laughs> she has to like, she pulls a chair over and stands up to talk to Kelsey Grammer eye to eye. <laughs> cause he doesn't really, like, cause it's Kristen Chandler. She's tiny and bubbly. She and he, is. And he's like, I need a first. So she's trying to like assert herself. <laughs> you don't get a sense so. of how tiny she is in this, except for there's one shot where she's standing next to, to Ned. Lee Pace is, is very tall. I believe. <laughs> It's so funny. Oh, man. So good. Yeah, Lee so Pace good. is six foot five. Okay. And let me check. Uh, Kristen Chenoweth. Oh, it's uh, no, not Kristen Stewart. Height. Somehow it's already giving Kristen Stewart's height. She's only five five. Kristen Chenoweth is four, listed as 4'11". Oh, my goodness. Yeah. She, how has she never played Tinkerbell? <laughs> <laughs> she probably has on Broadway or something. Um. All right, uh, Olive Snook is just her, un, un, just her longing for mm-hmm. for Ned. It's so great. And then in a future episode, I don't know if this was always the plan, or if it's because they have Kristen Jenner with. She just bursts into song when she's closing the pie hole one night. <laughs> really? Yeah, like she's she's doing the closing down routine, and she bursts into this longing song for oh, the pie maker. Uh, and it's just a full Broadway musical, like a Busby Ber- Berkeley musical wow. uh, is going to happen. Like the camera overhead shots of her spinning uh, and stuff. And then like it's never addressed why she burst into song and why it's f- a fully choreographed Broadway musical. And this show can get away with that. Where it's like, of course, yeah, <laughs> all of Snook is going to burst into song. This is pushing daisies. Yeah. And if you have Kristen Chenoweth, how do you not have her sing? No, of course. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I, we do also have to just note uh, Vivian Charles and Lily Charles, these sisters. Oh man, they're so good. And it's just such a different energy. The thing is like all this dialogue on the one hand, it is all that 1940s screwed up comedy patter. On the other hand, every character's voice is so distinct. You cannot swap lines. Mm-hmm. Right. And there there's um, the sisters <laughs> have this, dry disdain or at least lily does lily is the one that really has disdain because uh vivian is like slightly more hopeful Mm -hmm. but they both are just have so much social anxiety and so many so many phobias that they're living this lonely life uh together but the the actors that they hired just have distinct voices Mm -hmm. that are so perfect for these roles um and I'm wondering if like closing your eyes and like listening to the, the, the tone of the voice is part of the casting process. Cause you really need it for the way these lines uh-huh. have to be delivered. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about these sisters? <laughs> They're. Um, <laughs> I don't even know. There's such say. truly strange narrative creations. I don't know what mind came up with the darling. What, what's their name? The, the darling mermaid, da- darlings? mermaid darlings. <laughs> the whole story, like and and the, the Jim Dale narration along with it. And the, so they're these successful uh, mermaids. And then it's like, somebody throws, f- there's like food or something and it gets in her eye. And then that ruins her career. And <laughs> it's just it's like so bizarre. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then that has to happen because then you have that great scene with the shotgun and, and her not seeing Chuck because she can only see out of one eye. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's this perfect combination of just total like insanity, but then you go, Oh no, this was totally planned. Yeah. Like, and I think that's one thing I love is, about this is, is exactly where it should be sometimes there are stories where they lean into absurdity and it kind of becomes like, how strange can the creators think of something? Right. Which can, can be an interesting exercise of like just pushing boundaries, pushing boundaries. Uh, You know, you, you don't see this coming. You don't see this coming. And this has so much absurdity, but like you're saying, it's like, uh, like a pointillism dot. (laughs) Right. Uh, On a canvas where like, Eventually, when you step back, you're going to see that dot had to be exactly where it was. Yes. <laughs> and that's how they are. Both of these sisters. <laughs> yeah. The whole, it's like, like you said, I mean, we were talking, I don't know if, I think right before we, right before we started recording and I said, we, sh- we really should have done more than one episode of this. And then you said, but this is 
perfect <laughs> exactly how it is and it kind of feels like that like it's just it's so tightly created in and and the way that um the aesthetics and the dialogue and um and the acting everything comes together and it, it's just totally seamless it's really really great and there's so many things that like the whimsy of it alone could be a reason to do something like the naming of things, like you said, the boutique travel boutique and core to core. But then you realize there's, there's other reasons to have named that right. with the, you know, the chiasmatic theme mm-hmm. uh, that, that's going to be present in doing that. And a joke about uh, the synchronized swimmers, like losing an eye, like that joke earns itself. It could just be in there and <laughs> having the aunt walking around with an eye patch, it would fit within the aesthetic that they've mm-hmm. created for the world and the strangeness of these characters. And you would never have to address it, but then it becomes the greatest camera pan in television history yeah. <laughs> to, to swing over. Uh, and it just makes like everything gets elevated when those pieces interlock uh, in the end. Yep. And it's not like it felt out of place before, but when you appreciate why it is exactly why it is, it becomes better. Yep. Absolutely. That's how I feel about all of pushing daisies. Uh, I mean, if you're just go watch this one hour of the, of the pilot listeners uh, and just sit back and find something that you think, well, that's really strange and take a moment to think about like, well, why did they do it then? And you'll probably find a reason. Yeah. is <laughs> my guess. Uh, it's just so, so great. I hope we do get Brian Fuller the chance to, to revisit this world. Oh at some man. Point. seems like it's gotta happen. But it's been a long yeah, time. I mean, I, I was going to say, it seems like it will never happen or it must happen. One of those two. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. All right, Todd, any final thoughts about Pushing Daisies? No, I'm glad we got to do this. And and I know that it's it's near and dear to your heart. So I'm glad we got to talk about it. Oh, well, thank you, Todd, for returning to talk about this. I'm sure we'll have you on again soon because we have a thanks or a Halloween episode coming up mm. uh, that we, you know, traditionally, uh, what is this going to be? Eight years running? Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to have you on. I'm just double checking. Is this going to? Oh, depending on when this drops, we may have just had you back on for a Halloween special. <laughs> <laughs> this, this might not drop for a little while okay. uh, from this recording date. Uh, All right. Well, listeners, thank you for uh, downloading this episode. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to uh, thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. All right. Um, I forgot there was something I was going to go into and now I'm trying to rediscover it instead of naturally moving on to something else. <laughs> <laughs>